0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Yesterday on the program, we had uh, City Councilor Brenda Johnson on, and uh, she was expressing her uh, angst, I guess should we we should say, uh, about uh, some stories she heard from her constituents about the United Way. The United Way, of course, uh, does great work in this community as fundraising and, of course, helping out so many different agencies. And for years now, on this program, we've had uh, uh, different folks from the United Way on talking about the great work that they do in the community. And I think a lot of folks around here understand that because they've maybe been touched by that. Well. Uh, Which is why it was so surprising to get the story that uh, many of these uh, agencies, community agencies, uh, feel as if they're getting less money from the United Way these days. Some said they were promised money and didn't get any. And uh, Councillor Johnson and Councillor Partridge out in uh, Flamborough echoing the same sort of sentiments. Uh, And uh, they're hearing an awful lot from some of those groups and some of those agencies. And I know she's raised it at council. So we wanted to uh, obviously give uh, Councillor Johnson a platform to talk about that yesterday, and we did. But I wanted you to hear the other side of that, and to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, a couple of folks that uh, can talk about the United Way and their perspective. Brad Park is the CEO and president of the United Way of uh, Halton and Hamilton, and uh, Melissa Neewald is the Senior Director of Community Impact for the United Way. I bo- thanks, guys, for coming in here. It's good to have you in here today.
2: Thanks, Bill. Pleasure to be here.
1: Brad, let me start with you. Uh, your reaction, I guess, to the story and what went on here, and I, I will, in the fullness of, of this, the segment here, we can talk a lot and maybe put some meat on the bones here, but mm-hmm. uh, this caught me off guard. Uh, what, what was your reaction when you heard this?
2: Uh, Yeah, well, it it caught us off guard as well in the sense that uh, we knew there would be a reaction in the community to the fact that we had to make some hard decisions this year. Um, So we knew that would be out there, but some of the information that is coming out of the community isn't correct, and some of the reasons that we had to make those decisions and the reasons we are making those decisions uh, were incorrect as well. So I'm glad that we are able to be here today and answer some of those questions.
1: What happened as far as we can ser- was is because I want to talk about communication, I want to talk about the liaison and, and the connections, uh, Melissa, that the United Way has with some of these agencies and services that they deal with. Uh, is is that a strong link or was, was there a breakdown here?
3: Yeah, certainly we have really great relationships with a number of the agencies and um, the decisions that we made in early April of this year were actually the result of three years worth of work. Um, It's a process that we've been calling the road to greater impact, and that's just the name we've given to this process where we look at the needs in community. We gathered as much secondary research as we could in the fall of 2015, and then in the spring of 2016, actually took that information out to community and held a series of community conversations, followed up by a survey. And then we moved into phase three, which was about strategy design and implementation, and uh, it resulted also in a more focused investment framework for United Way, And so the decisions we made this April um, were within that model, and so there were some changes this year than had been in past years, but it was a three-year process that we've been undergoing, and we certainly invited agencies and community members and subject matter experts to work with us at every step of the way.
1: But did they become part of that process? I mean, let's face it, there are some agencies, the ones that I think Councilor Johnson was referring to, that simply expected okay you guys go through your reorganization or whatever it is that you're doing but uh, you know we still need our money on an annual basis and th- what i'm hearing is there was an expectation that that was going to continue
2: mm-hmm. we uh... actually we were telling the agencies all along this entire process that As of the beginning of this year, when we were changing the funding model, there was no guarantee for any funds. We were opening up the application process to the entire community and looking for the organizations that best fit into our new road to greater impact model. So agencies were told for the past three years that there was no guarantee there would be funds from United Way in the traditional sense that we were funding prior.
1: Why did you change the funding model?
2: We changed the funding model for many reasons. Um, United Ways across the country um, are struggling. United Ways are struggling to have a bigger impact in each of the communities they have. We were finding that we were spreading our dollars too thin through the community. We were trying to help every good organization out there that we could. And we needed to align and become more focused in what and how we were funding.
1: So how do you make that determination then, Melissa? I mean, I, I guess the end game here, they're going to be winners and losers then.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, and these were really tough decisions, and we know that they have really real impacts and we're really sensitive to that. Um, the way that we made these decisions was by really engaging the community, so really understanding what the needs are, gathering that research, talking to people who do this work every day, talking to community members and agencies, leaders, subject matter experts, um, to help us shape those decisions. United Way unlike some organizations who have a really specific mandate maybe focused on children or housing or cancer United Way doesn't have a mandate that's specific to one issue which means we can be really flexible and responsive to community needs but it also means that we actually have to rely on community and work very closely with community to understand what those needs are and where United Way should focus our dollars to ensure that every dollar has maximum impact
1: let me ask you something Brad about about that evaluation process and 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 I understand that I mean you know, one year you might have a great year and you might be able to raise ten, twelve million dollars. The next year you might get half of that. I mean, it's you're really at the at the behest of the people that are going to make contributions. We all understand that. But is there an annual evaluation of everybody that applies, or if you've received money in the United Way like for seven or eight years, do you just assume that you're in the loop and you're going to get some money from them at some point?
2: There is an annual evaluation of every agency that applies, okay. and, and in the 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 previous model. Um, every three years, an agency would enter a new funding application for a three-year process, and then they. So would once be- you
1: once you were uh, agreed that you you were there for three years. Then. For three years, okay. correct, and that's not the case anymore.
2: Um, that is the case. We will still maintain those three-year funding segments now, but we're just looking at different areas of focusing our impact. But I think you touched on a key point, in that uh, these these decisions weren't solely based on a new funding model that we were heading down. The fact of the matter is that the campaign. In, uh, the campaign as a whole came up short in each of the communities that we support. Here in Hamilton, the campaign uh, came up about $300,000 short pr- previous to what it did in, in last year's campaign. So there were less dollars in the, the funding pot that we had to allocate, which means we have to make those difficult decisions.
1: Yeah, I'll well, get into this. Uh, I'm I'm gonna dance around the word amalgamation because no, it's, it's a dirty word around here. Okay, from mm-hmm. a political standpoint, mm-hmm. but there was obviously uh, there was a, a, a gathering of minds, of course. And I remember having Jeff Valentin, the the former uh, CEO for the uh, Hamilton Burlington uh, United Way, on here, and he talked about the discussions that uh, that they had with Halton about about basically pooling resources to try to have a uh, a, a stronger body. Uh, and that's taking place right now, and and I know that some of the reaction and some of the feedback I've received over the last little while from some of the people that are a little disenfranchised and disenchanted with you right now is, you know what, this is just too big right now. They don't they don't they don't seem to focus on on the community anymore. They're looking at the broader area of things now, rightly or wrongly. That seems to be a mindset. How do you address that?
2: Well, I I mean I'm going to admit we maybe don't have it right quite yet we are still working through the challenges of becoming one organization which as I'm sure you can imagine are quite complex but we do I'm, know I was
1: on city council when the bigger amalgamation happened so I can tell you it's, it it's only 18 years and there's still headaches so I didn't expect you guys to have it done in 3 months
2: Well what I did see in uh, the past year is that we have changed some trends we've actually been able to slow the decrease in fundraising that Hamilton has seen over the past number of years prior to amalgamation the campaign was still struggling every year less and less dollars were being raised so 2 years ago $600,000 weren't raised in the community that that the campaign wasn't able to make, and uh, this past year it was 300,000. So the trend is reversing, and and as we become this bigger, stronger, uh, more st- an organization with more skills and talent, we'll be able to have a bigger impact in the community. Why, why is the,
1: the, the figure going down? Why are, is, are people just not contributing anymore? Is, are, is there too many people right now that say we need your help? I mean, because I've heard this ju- not just from your charity, but from so many others, of course, that are finding themselves in a similar circumstance. And and I know we tend to pride ourselves, especially in, in this country, as, as giving, caring people. And I think we are, mm-hmm. uh, but it seems as if we're giving less. I don't know if we're caring less. I don't think we are, but we're giving less, certainly
2: with over 80,000 registered charities in Canada there's a lot of organizations you can give to so that demand for a donor's dollars is just increasing right there are more and more charities to give it to and they're all worthy charities so organizations like Way are great because we not only look as Melissa mentioned at one single community issue we're able to look at the whole community and find the best pieces to solve those community issues
1: you're a work in progress, as you just mentioned, uh, Brad, and and I guess that yeah, we can t- have to take that at face value. Obviously, this is uh, a, an arduous process to try to get everything going, and you're, and you're looking after community interests. Uh, given what's happened here, uh, d- does this give you some pause for maybe the way that you're going and maybe you have a reassessment about about the assessment process with some of these agencies?
2: Um, actually, I believe we are going in the right direction, I think, and we are just at the beginning of... of uh, implementing the road to greater impact in Halton as well. We know that this model is going to bring the community together. We will be focused. We will be solving community issues, and uh, we will maintain this path.
1: Were there redundancies in the old model? I mean, when there was a Halton, when there was a Hamilton-Burlington? I I know they are separate communities, but, I mean, some of these agencies are are, are like-minded agencies. Maybe in some cases, that's the same social service or the same agency, just in a different community. Mm -hmm. Uh, does, Does this new hot united way that you've got right now does it address that or was that a problem before
3: Certainly we found efficiencies on many different levels when the four organizations came together. And you're right, it was true that some of the organizations operating in Halton region specifically were applying to four separate United Ways. And so now that we've come together, one thing that we were able to do was really streamline that process and find efficiencies there. So now an agency that has a program running in multiple communities can apply to a single United Way one time online um, and see some of that progress year over year.
1: But were they getting four different, uh, They were obviously four different agencies, uh, were they getting four times as much money as they would under this new system?
3: No. So, no, they wouldn't necessarily get four times as much money, but what we were able to do was find efficiencies in the application process. Okay,
1: yeah, I understand that. But are those people going to come back and say, well, geez, uh, yeah, I'm only going to apply to one agency now, but I'm getting less money. Uh, it just seems as if uh, if everybody's in the same boat right now, that they're all going to be saying, look, at, we're coming up short here.
3: In Halton, we were able to, so as Brad mentioned, we did experience a bit of a a decrease in our fundraising efforts across the board this year, and part of that was a result of the amalgamation. But we were proud to be able to invest 90% of the requests across all of Halton region.
1: Let me ask you about that, because that's always been, I think, one of the mainstays of the United Way, Brad, uh, the money that's raised in a community stays in the community uh, uh, and again because of what's gone on and because of the angst that some people are feeling right now they're starting to question that is that is that still one of the pillars of what you're doing
2: that is and will always be a pillar of what we're doing the money that was raised local stays local so every Hamilton dollar that was raised in a workplace or through an individual, went to support the programs and agencies that are represented here in Hamilton. So the Hamilton, the legacy organization of Hamilton, Burlington, United Way had that model set up already yep. for them between Hamilton and Burlington, and we were just able to extend that into the other communities we now operate in.
1: So that's, that's still there. So I just want people Absolutely. to be clear on that, that the, the, the money that was raised here for United Way was not spent in Halton or Burlington or anywhere else. Not at all. So that's that's I wanted to clear that up because that's one of those think s- those statements that's out there right now and it I can really just kind of throw gasoline under the fire if we don't have some clarity on that. All right, so you've got some upset people, you've got some upset city councilors. I know you're going to go on address council in a, in a couple of weeks at Hamilton City Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you go from here, though? I mean, obviously th- there are some folks here whose faith in the United Way is is shaken to a certain extent right now. What? How do you do build that bridge again?
2: We. Continue to get out there in front of the community, speaking to our stakeholders, speaking to the community as a whole, helping them understand the direction we're going in and where we are are headed. Um, It's going to be a lot of community conversations, um, increasing our visibility, making sure we're back here talking to you more often, getting to your listeners, helping them understand what we're doing and the impact that we are having in the community of Hamilton. This year, we are able to fund 43 amazing programs at 28 different agencies. There are... S- there are over 72,000 Hamiltonians that are being um, that are being helped through the programs and agencies that we are funding. So we are doing great work in the community, and we're just going to keep out getting out there and letting the community know.
1: There is another criticism, and I, I'm, I'm just going to lay this on the table, Melissa, and I'd like you guys to address it is that uh, the United Way may well be top-heavy in administrative costs. In other words, I guess the concern is for every dollar that's contributed, uh, how much of that is actually going to the agencies, and how much is it going to administrative costs? Yeah, our,
2: our administrative costs are at 23% on the dollar, which you have to put it into perspective and understand what that means. To some that may sound high, so to some that may sound low. CRA... Uh, has a guideline that you have to be under 35 percent to be a registered charity so we're well under that our board revisits that annually and our goal is to continue to push that down to continue to reduce that number so that we can maximize the dollars that are going to our agencies we're very proud of that 23 percent and we will continue to work hard to find efficiencies to raise more revenue so that number continues to decrease is it too
1: simplistic uh, to suggest, Melissa, that uh, the, the, the real solution here is to just try, to try to get more money? I mean, if, if people contributed more, maybe this problem doesn't happen?
3: Yeah and I think that's a really important point and especially now it takes all of us really rallying together you know I mentioned the really unique and important role that United Way plays in community from an impact side of things so understanding the issues and how we can address those issues and on the fundraising side of things um, United Way unlike some organizations whose sources of revenue may be a little more steady or permanent United Way relies solely on donor dollars so at a time when we know the need is high um, it does take the entire community rallying together and even through this open call for applications, um, we were way oversubscribed, which speaks to the need in community. So we need all of us and that, working together to address That's surprising because
1: we look at this now historically and I, I think a lot of us are in the opinion, hey, we're in a pretty good situation here right now. The economy's not doing too badly. Uh, you know, there seems to be relatively low employment, things like this. You figure hey, maybe the, the pressure is going to ease a little bit, but you're telling us it's actually getting bigger and, and greater.
3: Well, I think it's, it's quite complex, first of all, um, and some of these issues are very persistent and complex. You know, issues of poverty, yeah. um, they're, not, they're not easy, and it's not United Way that's going to be able to solve those issues. We really need to work with the community, and some things are getting better, I think, in Hamilton, and maybe some things are getting worse, and a lot of these issues are just really persistent and complex issues.
1: I don't want to get too political here, Brad. Well, I guess I usually do, but I mean, in this particular circumstance. uh, But government's got a role to play here, and I'm not laying this at the feet of municipal governments, but, I mean, uh, you're trying to do basically uh, the sorts of things that that we would like to think that the government could have a hand in, too, in dealing with people that have issues and challenges, uh, whether it's uh, economic, whether it's mental health issues, whatever the case might be. Uh, I, I can tell you from firsthand information from all the years that I've worked with guys like you on the United Way uh, that you can't lay it all on simply say well it's up to the United Way to go all this stuff there's got to be a community effort here and you're a great part of that but you're not the only part of it
2: and I think Melissa touched on that beautifully you know it's gonna take all of us coming together government corporations nonprofit to build a better community. I think an interesting fact is the fact is that United Way um, across the country, United Way of Canada is the second largest funder of social services next to government. So we do play an important role in building community. and uh, and should ni- United Ways not be here, communities would look very different.
1: Yeah, but that's that fulcrum, uh, and you're the second biggest, as you say right after government. But if various governments decide to relinquish some of that responsibility, th- that puts more pressure on you. Because uh, people are going to turn and say, well, they're not giving it to us anymore, so we've got to get it from you guys.
2: Absolutely, and our sector has seen that happen in the past m- many times with different governments coming in and making changes. Well, you see, that's policies. the politics
1: of it. Is that You know, when governments want to find quote-unquote efficiencies invariably, social services and that kind of assistance seem to be the first target. And that just seems sadly to be a, a, a common characteristic. Uh, we're just about out of time here. So as we mentioned, you, you are going to be appearing before city council at this stage. Uh, and, and talking. I think you've been invited. I think it's the middle of June that you're going to be there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, is, is, is there going to be more communication with these groups, with these agencies? Because so it sounds like some of them just didn't quite understand the process or what was going on here.
3: Yeah, we have ongoing and regular communications with our agencies, and I think we have, uh, for the most part, really great relationships and often long standing relationships. As I mentioned, we did um, work with agencies all along the way and made ourselves, we did presentations, we had information sessions, staff made themselves available for one on one conversations with organizations that wished to discuss their particular situation further. And so we really tried as best we could throughout this entire process to be uh, communicative and transparent and to bring everybody along in terms of where we were heading.
1: Brad Park and uh, Melissa Rewald uh, from the United Way campaign. Guys, thanks so much for coming in today and for the clarifications. Thank thanks, you, Bill. It was
3: a pleasure. You're listening to
0: The Bill
1: Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Stephen Harper is back. Well, sort of. Uh, the ex-Prime Minister uh, was uh, one of the signatures on a, uh, poli- and a paper that was uh, in the, uh, the New York Times the other day. It's actually a full-page ad. That uh, basically thanked Donald Trump for his decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal earlier this week. The uh, well controversial decision, shall we say? Uh, Tim Harper writes about it. Tim course, freelance writer and editor, and uh, his uh, piece pe- appears in the Toronto Star today. Stephen Harper' endorsement of Trump gives the Liberals a foreign policy opening, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing this morning, Tim? I'm doing well, Bill. How are you? Good. I love uh, the, the great piece today, by the way. And as, you. as you say, I mean, what, what the liberals want to do, I guess, with the federal election about a year or so away, is invoke the the ghost of Stephen Harper. And lo and behold, there he was, uh, in full force and in full view for everybody.
0: No conjuring needed. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the the liberal strategy, I guess, this was um, foreshadowed at the, uh, the the party convention last um, uh, last month in Halifax. When the prime minister referred to uh, the opposition leader Andrew Scheer, as uh, or threw his own self uh, self description back at him, is uh, Stephen Harper with a smile. Uh, it's a, you know it's a tried and true political tactic, as you well know, who, uh, to try to play the uh, the bogeyman card and and uh, and try to uh, tar this government as just a continuation of a, a government that was quite unpopular when it was turfed in two thousand fifteen. Uh, it it may bear fruit. It, it, it's probably too early to tell. Uh, for those of you who watch Question Period, and I'm sure that's a very tiny uh, part of your audience, uh, as it should be. Um, <laughs> it is it is way over the top to hear the Prime Minister uh, refer to Stephen Harper when he gets a question from the other side of the house from the Conservatives. And I think he set a new record on Wednesday. You know, on Wednesdays when he's in town, he he, he takes questions for the entire. Uh, question period. And he used Stephen Harper's name uh, an even dozen times um, to attack him on everything from uh, changes to the Election Act, to the economy, to his treatment of seniors, to the environment. Every answer came back, uh, mentioned Stephen Harper uh, uh, from the prime minister. So, I mean, there's nothing subtle. It's about as subtle as a sledgehammer. But they're trying to invoke the ghost of Harper. And then lo and behold, uh, there's the former prime minister uh, loud and proud in a full-page New York Times ad. So, um, you know, uh, I think that kind of made the Trudeau's job a little easier this week.
1: Not for the first time, though, as as he, he, you and I've talked about in the past. You wrote a piece, I think, about this a while ago, uh, when Harper weighed in on the NAFTA negotiations uh, mm-hmm. some months ago, and and basically said that Canada was dropping the ball here, uh, and that they should basically, you know, don't don't rattle the cage for Donald Trump here. Uh, and and I, I find it interesting, obviously, because there was a new media pushback from the Trudeau government about that. But then you had Ronna Ambrose just a couple of days ago basically chiding her own party and saying, guys, you don't do this. Uh, but Harper is consistent, I guess. I mean, he, he's going to try to cut the knees out from under Trudeau every chance he gets.
0: Well, you know, I do give him total credit for being uh, consistent on the uh, yeah. Iranian question. Uh, he, as you know, in fact, shuttered the embassy there in uh, Tehran in 2012. Um, this was the position he took uh, at the time as, uh, uh, as prime minister. Uh, he uh, wrote a co-authored an op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal in March, criticizing this deal. So, you know, there's nothing inconsistent about his his stance on uh, Iran. Um, uh, his pro-Israeli views are well known, and, and and his view of this of this deal. Uh, I think the the difference between this and, and NAFTA is that. Um, during the, the uh, NAFTA negotiations, Canada has tried to maintain uh, a common uh, front without any internal domestic bickering over this, and uh, Harper kind of broke that uh, playbook. But in this case, you know, uh, the lib- with one exception, which I, I hope we can talk about, Defence Minister Harjit Sajid, other me- ministers, including the Prime Minister, had the same message yesterday. Stephen Harper is a private citizen. He's certainly allowed to have his views on this, um, but uh, what it does, of course, is it now puts the pressure on the current uh, Conservative opposition uh, for them to, to uh, come up and uh, come out and cobble together a, uh, a response to Trump uh, dropping out of this pact, which they haven't actually done. I don't think Harper uh, Harper's view is very different. I don't think there's any daylight really between Harper's view and the current Conservative government. Uh, But that, again, plays into uh, the Trudeau strategy because he is uh, daily trying to tell Canadians that there is no change uh, from the Harper Conservatives, that they they are still the Harper Conservatives, just led by uh, another guy.
1: I want to talk about CJ in a second, but just on that last point, though, Tim, you raise an interesting idea here. Uh, if Sheer does all of a sudden start to come out and 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 suggest that uh, that he thinks Trump was right too, uh, given what Harper has already done here, does that just validate what what uh, Trudeau was saying that is that Sheer is just Harper Light, He's just gonna he's just gonna mouth whatever Stephen Harper says.
0: Well, he's been he's been kind of boxed in here. Hasn't yeah, he? uh, exactly. They have, they have uh, in in fact, um, you know, there seems to be a rule of thumb uh, in, in Canadian politics and probably in politics uh, in most countries. Uh, if you uh, agree with Donald Trump you don't uh, shout it from the rooftops you don't take out a full page ad in the New York Times and and the conservatives for example uh, do support uh, Trump's uh, decision to move the uh, uh, the embassy uh, to Jerusalem uh, and declare it the the, the capital. but they did it in such a muted understated way that, um, they kind of whispered their support after uh, allowing an obligatory period of weeks to pass. Uh, and, and on this, again, it's a foreign policy question that an opposition party should be fast out of the gates with at least their foreign affairs critics stating uh, what their view is, what they would do if they were in government. Uh, and they haven't done it. And Stephen Harper is um, uh, forcing them to do it. And you, you quite rightly point out um, the op- either option for is 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 not necessarily palatable if in fact they decided to buck harper well that would be a story because now they're they're breaking with the uh... uh... you know the, the longtime uh... leader and prime minister of the party but if they just uh, go ahead and and uh, basically come up with a position that harper's already given full-throated voice to then they do face charges from the liberals and they will get these charges that um, they are just um, parroting Harper and nothing's changed.
1: Let me ask you, you, you we talk obviously about, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, about uh, trying to invoke the ghost of Harper uh, for Trudeau's benefit. How much sway does Harper still have with the Conservative Party, Nash? I mean, obviously there's going to be these comparatives with Andrew Scheer and, and Harper. Uh, but I, I got the sense that when he finally stepped aside and they went through the leadership uh, race, such as it was over the last year, uh, I still remember Ron Ambrose's speech at saying I think it was at the Christmas thing and I know it was done tongue in cheek but she says okay you guys all you conservatives can come out now the big bad ugly man is gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh and, and uh, but oh, but I thought sure. I thought okay the reason it was funny is because that's probably what a lot of people are thinking and and she just kept, I, I think capitalized on that. Uh does does Harper still have a lot of sway with the conservative party?
0: Look there was a clean break uh, as soon as he left. You mentioned Ron Ambrose you know here's here's one example. One of the first things um that she did as the interim leader after uh, Harper left was do a complete 360 on, for example, the inquiry into missing and murdered uh, Indigenous yeah. women, uh, and, and he immediately announced that the Conservatives would support that uh, after um, years of, of Harper saying it wasn't needed. So, yeah, you're right. There was a clean break, and for a while there, uh, Stephen Harper looked like he was a, uh, uh, you know, in political rehab. We didn't hear much from him. He was a uh, He was a a reformed politician. He was going to uh, ride off into the sunset, but, you know, that rarely happens. So you mentioned the NAFTA intervention, uh, and now um, uh, he's been very vocal on the Iranian uh, question. Um, I suspect we will hear more from him, uh, particularly when it comes to foreign affairs. Um, That's that's usually how former prime ministers uh, get back into the public eye, uh Brian mulroney for example mm-hmm. in deal in dealing with uh b- uh bilateral US Canada issues or or, or uh, foreign issues writ large uh on the world stage um so we're going to hear from him whether he holds sway within the party uh is a very good question i don't believe he does but the andrew sheer front bench is um Populated by uh, a bevy of former Harper ministers, so it you know whether he, Harper holds sway with that caucus or not, if he was to say something, um, is it, not particularly relevant because it's very easy to paint them as the uh, as the Harper uh, Tories. Uh, their, their their critics are the former cabinet ministers.
1: This, let's talk about the politics within politics, and, and you referenced this in the piece that uh, the, the Prime Minister was basically saying, Stephen Harper can say whatever he wants, he's just Joe Citizen. Uh, Christy Freeland comments along the same line, why then uh, did Sagan take it to the next step and basically said this is regrettable, etc., and the influence that it may have? Is, is he going to take the lead on this one and just let the Prime Minister stand back?
0: Uh, I don't think so. I think, uh, my guess is that he was speaking out of turn, I, and I'm not sure, Bill, I understand his argument because uh, I don't know where it's written that uh, we can only speak with one voice on a foreign af- uh, affairs policy. That's why you have a vibrant opposition. that's why uh, you know voters have a have a choice. So his suggestion that um, that this was out of line and quite harmful to the government um, is frankly nonsensical to me, and I don't know why he's making it much um more logical to make the Christopher Freeland Justin Trudeau argument that uh while well, he's a private citizen he's allowed to say what he does but we disagree with him and that's that's all you have to say because Harper has given you the opening you don't have to pound on him um you just say that you know this is what he said i wonder what the conservatives think here's what our government policy is and wrap it up so Sajin, i think really went uh, outside the lines here and uh uh, just a, a strange uh, argument to say having a former prime minister do something like this is not helpful. He, he said it on CTV's Power Play last night. Mm, yeah. I, I, I don't get it. I, I don't understand what that that argument is all about. And uh, no, I think he I think he freelanced
1: because I, I can see the dance that's going on with the government, and and it's one of the things that the prime minister's done ever since uh, Donald Trump became president uh, is disagree without being disagreeable. I know that sounds like a trite comment, but I mean it's really the the strategy. Uh, and I think that was what uh, Christie Freeland said that uh, they 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 regretted the move that Trump they didn't say it was wrong. They just said they regretted that that's what they decided to do uh, and, and always trying to maintain that relationship and say, John, I guess didn't get that email.
0: well, you, you, it's not just Trump. It's very you know, governments don't generally call other governments wrong for uh, uh, making decisions that so, you know we, we, whether it's Donald Trump or Barack Obama, you know, Canada obviously has to respect the sovereign right of the United States. Or any ally uh, to take their own decisions. So, um, you know that regret, I guess, is about as strong as you're going to get. Uh, although it does sound a little milquetoast, but in diplomatic parlance, that's probably what you're going to get. Yeah, and you know, the 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 elephant in the room here is everybody seems to be spooked by uh, by the NAFTA talks, which are uh, uh, either uh, coming to a, a crash or a conclusion, depending on who you talk to. That you know, anything that. Uh, is said about uh, the Trump administration could endanger these trade talks uh which is a little bit ridiculous because um, you know our views on uh, uh on the the Iran uh nuclear pact of 2015 really has not any resonance in the United States we're not we're not we're not part of the deal uh and it it really staggers me to think that you know regretting a a decision by Trump is somehow going to have some impact on the on the NAFTA talks but You hear that a lot from people, and um, I guess that just shows you how uh, fragile these negotiations, these NAFTA negotiations are, that everybody seems to want to be very careful about what they say about uh, Washington at this point.
1: Back to Harper for a second. Uh, and You know, by jumping up in, in here as he did, and of course he made the comments about NAFTA, which, by the way, we have to put in context. He, he did not actually go public on that. I think it was a, a newsletter that he put out that somebody actually sent out and said, look what uh, Stephen Harper's saying. It's not as a... So well,
0: yeah, it got leaked pretty easily. So yeah, okay. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not being suggesting there's anything nefarious, but... That got out there in a real hurry, but anyways, yeah. Is,
1: is he is he trying to move back in? Is he trying to get that 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 statesman like uh, designation that that former presidents and former prime ministers uh, sometimes try to retain?
0: Well, in fairness, on the NAFTA thing, he was working for his clients. Yeah, uh, in that case, I mean that's what he's doing now. Um, he uh, Stephen Harper is a tough guy to analyze, as you know. Uh, traditionally, historically, former prime ministers or former presidents uh, don't just you know, fade away to the Muskoka chair in the golf and the golf course, right? They they are still in demand uh, for obvious reasons as uh, as speakers or as analysts or to sit on boards and so on. Um, so I would, uh, I think Harper will uh, take a um, uh, a more public profile going forward. There's always a bit of a a cooling off period, but you know, uh, Brian Mulroney, Jean Chrétien. Um, We've been hearing from them for years and years and years after they left office. Um, so I don't think Harp- Harper always seemed to be uh, kind of the, the reluctant politician. You know, he wasn't. He didn't like out there glad handing, and uh, he was more of a, a technocrat than a than a um, you know uh, a charismatic politician, obviously but he's got things to say and he's got views and he's had a long time in power as the leader of a G7 nation so i would find it hard to believe that we're not going to hear more and more from him on you know questions of uh, where it pertains to israel and israel security for example or russia or you know, these are deeply held views that he has and people are seeking them out so yeah i think we're probably going to hear um uh more from him uh, going forward and i guess the question will be how andrew shear and uh, And the conservative brain trust wants to deal with it.
1: Well, exactly, because you have to wonder whether or not every time Harper speaks, it undermines Andrew Shear. You know, that's everybody's kind of looking. Well, does he speak for the conservatives, or do you, Andrew? You know, which again goes back to what you pointed out here. uh, Because uh, you know, it's only been a year or so, but I mean, Shear still has not really defined himself to the Canadian public.
0: No, and that's what uh, that's part of the liberal strategy. Not only do they still have to somehow look like the agents of change. Running for re-election in 2019, how how do you do that? Well, you remind people of what you did in 2015 and why you needed the change, and and and, and try to do it again. But the, the other thing you want to do to a political opponent is define him or her before they are, they have defined themselves for uh, the the Canadian electorate. Yeah, and ask Michael
1: Ignatieff about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he really allowed that to happen, um, and uh, Sheer is still not. Uh, very well known by Canadians, it's very difficult for an opposition leader to become well known before an election. A new uh, opposition leader, uh, as Tom Mulcair, who mm-hmm. you know uh, was you know worshipped for his work in the House of Commons in Ottawa, but you got outside the Ottawa bubble and you found people didn't know who he was. So it's a tough slog. And if uh, Trudeau can uh, define Andrew Sheer before Sheer can define himself. You know, and they've won that pre-election skirmish.
1: You mentioned I uh, got a couple of minutes left here in the piece today. Uh, I, I got to kick out of this one. Uh, Harper is obviously the latest boogeyman uh, to wear those horns. You know, to, as don't let this guy ever come back into the public life. Don't let him. And, and that. And you mentioned some of the other ones that have gone before him that had that designation. That's a pretty illustrious list.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it is. But um, I, I, I think I said Bob Ray just, deserves to be in the boogeyman yeah. Hall of Fame. There, there's, there seems to be no statute of limitations when it comes to uh, frightening people about a uh, an NDP government in Ontario or, or electing uh, new Democrats in Ontario. Uh, we'll see. At some point it doesn't work anymore, but I remember being in um, committee rooms and barnstorming with Harper in 2011 when the Jack Layton orange wave uh, was clearly sweeping across Quebec and, and threatening an invasion in Ontario, and he scared the bejeebers out of people about reminding them about the Bob Ray government, uh, which at that point was 21 years ago, I guess. So now it's 28 years ago. It will be an interesting experiment to see, you know, with Andrea Horvath now in the provincial campaign, seemingly positioned very well um, to take on Doug Ford by coming uh, up the middle. Uh, it'll be interesting we start hearing uh, references to uh, the Bob Ray government of 1990. That'll be a sure sign that she's being seen as a threat. Or whether, you know, maybe we have finally reached the statute of limitations. It's been 28 years. You know, at some point you've got voters who obviously weren't even born uh, when Bob Ray uh, ran the government in Ontario. And maybe uh, we're at a point where those arguments don't work in in this case. But uh, it'll be fascinating as we go ahead. And I bet you somebody will raise the Bob Ray government if Horvath uh, looks to be surging.
1: Well, I've talked to Bob a number of times over the years, as you have, and he's, he's a colorful guy, a fascinating individual. Uh, and I'm glad he's got a sense of humor, because you're right, he's, yeah. he's enshrined in the Hall of Fame here. But uh, he's getting it from both ends, though, these days, Tim. I mean, obviously, the conservatives are going to say, don't, it's the member of the Bob Ray government. Well, then the NDP turned on him when he went back to being a liberal. <laughs> uh, and they're saying Bob Ray, it was all Bob Ray's fault it wasn't the NDP government it was Bob Ray himself that did all that stuff and we're not Bob Ray anymore so poor Bob's getting it from both ends here
0: well he, and he's carried it for a long time yeah but when he was uh he he got proactive about um, his government uh while he was the interim leader uh, for the liberals and was uh contemplating a, a run for the for the full-time job the job that Trudeau obviously got easily but you know, uh, he was carrying his own bogeyman status around with him, and I think that played into his decision. There were other factors, but, you know, it, how palatable he would be to Ontario voters.
1: Uh, great piece in the start today. Uh, Stephen Harper endorsement of Trump gives the Liberals a foreign policy opening. Always a pleasure, Tim. Thanks so much for this today.
0: Likewise, Bill. Good to talk to you again.
1: Take care. Tim Harper, of course, freelance writer and
0: editor. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: We don't often have uh, authors on, but uh, w- when I come across a fabulous read, I want to bring it to your attention. And, and I've come across another one, a fabulous read, uh, by a Hamilton author. Uh, Liz Harmer uh, has written a book. Uh, you may know Liz from uh, some of the stories and essays that she's written. She's been published in the uh, the Hat Review, Prism, uh, The New Quarterly, uh, and others. Uh, won a National Magazine Award in personal journalism. Uh, Long listed for uh, the CBC Short Story Prize and was a finalist in the Glimmer Train Prize. But now she's got a novel. And it's a unique novel with some unique twists. And, and, and yeah, there's a storyline to this as well, but there's a philosophy to this book that I, that I just found so intriguing. And uh, coincidentally, Liz is back in town, and she's with us right here on The Bill Kelly Show. It's great to meet you. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for this uh, this uh, The book is called The Amateur, or The Amateurs, rather. Uh, and, and I want to talk a little bit about the plot line because it's, it's kind of intriguing, but uh, there's, there's a whole philosophy to this about living in the present uh, that you, you address in this that uh, I just found riveting. Uh, and, and I want to talk about that for just a couple of seconds because it's something that, that, as you point out, we're probably all guilty of. We love to reminisce. We love to think about the future. What am I going to do about this? And we, we sometimes are ignoring what we are now and where we are now.
4: Yeah, I was one of the things I was thinking about is how much I'm in my imagination, whether I'm thinking about my memories or my hopes and my dreams. Um, I'm reading, I'm escaping through books, I'm escaping through films. Um, and then of course I have my devices now. And how often am I actually in the space that I'm in, I'm present with someone else or present by myself, um, paying attention to what's actually there. And you know, there was all this talk about that when I had babies, people telling me, you have to be there, you have to be present because it's going to pass so quickly. And, and I had a really hard time knowing how to do that, um, and then of course it passes anyway. So as I was, one of the so the big, um, yeah, the philosophies of the book or the thoughts I was having was um, making it literal with sort of time travel devices. Well, yeah, because that's yeah. A, that's whole
1: thing. Since we all seem to do that mm-hmm. in varying degrees, that's really the premise of the book, and that's what that's the, the, what whether giving the whole story away. I mean, the premise is the technology is such at, at this stage in this book. Where you could do that. If you don't want to be here, you can go someplace else. You can go back in time, but we can do whatever you want.
4: Yeah. So if with you one have, qualifier, right? Right, right. So if you have a portal that you could go anywhere you want, um, you know, do you stay? What would keep you here? And uh, and what happens to the present when when everybody goes away? So those are the things I was thinking about. But it's true. The portals um, promise have a very seductive promise of taking you where you want to go, but it doesn't quite turn out that way.
1: Well, and and as you talk about in the book, I mean, that sounds fascinating. I uh, hate time travel. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh but there's no guarantee you're going to get back.
4: Right. So, um there's also a, a critique of the kind of uh, the way our technology sometimes um becomes embedded in our lives before we know the consequences of it. So, um I wasn't so much I was thinking about that in a in a large way, uh but it's become a little more um urgent. I think I think the way that our technology has become so taken over like I feel like my, it's, I'm addicted to my technology kind of before I knew what I was getting into and I and that's kind of another so I was thinking about our technology and how it's doing that to our lives. But
1: with that premise that uh, that we oftentimes would rather be someplace else yeah. uh the technology technology has developed into this point in the novel uh and and allows for that to happen. And, and, and the basic idea here, I guess, is so many people take advantage of it. It's almost a po- post-apocalyptic book. Yes. There's very few people left. It's yeah. not because of nuclear war. It's because everybody left.
4: Yes. Um, my, one of my mentors described it as a technological rapture. It's like in Hamilton, there, there are 42 people left in the beginning of the novel. Um, and then there's a compound in Silicon Valley uh, where the inventors live, and there's 900 people left there. So, yeah, and they don't know if anyone else is around elsewhere in the world.
1: It's 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 eerie in in the way that you describe this uh, that there are these little pockets all over the earth uh, you know and it it is it's very much like uh, a number of other famous novels obviously after nuclear war etc that uh you know, there's a little pile of survivors here a little bit but they don't know that they exist uh, and yet and the, the the hero well the the two heroes I guess actually in the book uh, Marie and uh, and the man that she has job hanging out with uh, uh, Jason. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, are, are still conflicted, I guess, about whether or not they want to stay where they are or go someplace else.
4: Yeah, so there's a question um, among the, survi- the survivors or the leftovers, the remainders in Hamilton. Um, you know, should I go through port? Should I leave? Should I stay here? I love it here now. Um, or sh- and then the question also for the Hamilton group is, do we stay here another winter? <laughs> because the grid's gone down, there's no heat. Um, so there's this dilemma also um, about staying, just spatially staying here
1: how why hamilton why did you use that as, as as the the basis for this now you're obviously from here but you've lived in in california for a while Though your mm-hmm. your husband has a, a job down there you're writing down there uh, i know you're back here uh, you still got strong ties here but it's highly unusual to use this uh, this city as as a backdrop for something like this
4: i think it is unusual and i guess the novel is so it really is drenched in nostalgia and wistfulness mm-hmm. and and romance and i had so many of my peak experiences in Hamilton, and I love the city. I mean, I fell in love at McMaster. We met at, at University of McMaster. Um, you know, I had my children here, and uh, I lived here as a child. And I, I used to take the HSR across the t- across town from Stony Creek to Ancaster to get to high school. Um, so you know, throughout my life, I was just soaking the city with my imagination and my ideas and my romance. So, so to me, it's a ve- it's it's the city. It's the city of my life. <laughs>
1: what I what I like the way you incorporate this and. and- I'm going to sit there. I remember having a conversation with the great author Linwood Barkley, a couple of years ago. And we got talking about Dan Brown's novels, and mm. got, and, and he says you're criticizing Dan Brown, <laughs> but I said you know what? Sometimes he goes into too much detail about mm. about about where Langdon is in, in these things, and I figure I don't need to hear all that. I just keep going the storyline. Uh, you don't. You almost mention this anecdotally about parts as if they're reference points. You don't belabor it, but it's there as as, as almost like a, a landmark to say, yeah, okay, I, okay, I know where you are. They're on the, they're on the brow now, okay. Right. Yeah, well, I've been there, but then you move on with the story.
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess... I it's mean, it's
1: descriptive, it's colorful, and it puts a, paint, a picture in our mind, but but you're using it as as, as part of the, the, the basis for the story, basically, just at the scene, and then you just move on with the plot.
4: Yeah, right. Like, I, I have them kind of going down the, the brow, uh, passing those stairs. I used to climb those stairs mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, so I guess it is sort of, it's the backdrop, and it's just their normal city, the way it's our normal city.
1: The inspiration for the book, uh, you, you mentioned, it, Gerson in, in the premise that I guess you and your, your husband had a lot of talks about time travel, future philosophy, things of this mm-hmm. nature. Uh, those ideas grow. Is that is that how this, this this book started to form?
4: Yeah, actually, I had very, um, uh, it was sort of a silly concept for me at first. I thought, oh, what if I put a time machine in this story? But my husband is a philosopher, and he's very interested in infinity and, and thinking about philosophy of math and logic and so he would kind of push me to think about oh, what would happen uh, logically what happens when you go back in time and and how it um, how it loops the into the future and it you know changes the changes the present thinking about what even is the present um, because philosophers are always thinking about time and um, and because the present passes so quickly is there such a thing are we always sort of just going into a future from the past and is there ever a present so we were having a lot of those conversations. He was the one that was excited about this idea of the of the portal. Partly, he he loves like Vonnegut. He loves Star Trek, um, mm-hmm. and so he he was encouraging me to to go towards that because I usually write more realism and people kind of chatting with each other and having personal drama.
1: But the difference between some of those other ones, whether they're talking Lord of the Flies or anything else, these post apocalyptic things, there's usually some disaster uh, right. that, that that causes uh, the circumstance that they're in. Uh, this is choice. These yeah. are people that decide and says, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going over there.
4: Yeah, that's true. It's I, a different
1: mindset. They're not forced into it,
4: right? There's like it's not quite as a bleak or um, yeah, disaster-ridden. It's more it's more people kind of going, oh my gosh, what happened to the world? Um, and that's where the amateurs come in. It's sort of um, sort of feeling like uh, I don't know how to live. I don't know what to do, and um, I don't know what choice to make. So that um, so it's more of an exploration of of what it's really like to, it's not an explanation, uh, exploration of what it would be like in an extreme circumstance. It feels like more like how we are now. We're always wondering what to do and how to do it. And
1: are Marie and well, uh, and Jason will talk about them cause they do get together. Mm. Are they, are they there because they want to be there or cause they don't know where they want to go or are they afraid to, to do what others have done?
4: I think there's a, there is a, a large measure of fear. And I think Marie, Marie is the character in uh, Hamilton. She's, um, she's a sort of just a natural skeptic. And so she's not going to just jump into any port. That she
1: seemed tentative uh, in the first part of the book that I've read. Yes,
4: very tentative. And um, kind of, there's a lot of the people who are left are probably left partly because they're scared of them. They're mm-hmm. worried about them. Um, and then uh, Brandon, who comes in in the penis section, is he's the PR man for the CEO of the p- company who um, created them. And he's finding out maybe they didn't know as much as he thought they did. So he's finding out that... Um, that there was maybe something more uh, malicious at the heart, or, or or much worse than than he thought. So he he's staying because he's loyal to um, to his friend Doors, but also he's staying because they have a good life there. So they have solar power and. And now they're just um, living it up at the Pina headquarters in Silicon Valley. Yeah,
1: they're the ones that have, has the technology as opposed to, you know, yes. Hamilton, it is apocalyptic. I mean, right. it's just, you know, what have we got left? There's no heat, there's no nothing else here. And you're kind of wandering from neighborhood to neighborhood. Although she stays, she's in the North End, right?
4: Yeah, she stays above the art shop where, it um, was inspired by the art shop on James North, um, Dave Kirk's store. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and she, lo- she loves to live there, so she still opens the store. She's waiting for her ex-husband to come back. She's hoping he'll come back. There's no sign of him.
1: Now, yeah, I don't want to get too Mm -hmm. deeply into the plot because that's an interesting side twist of the whole thing, But there's a certain melancholy feeling uh, to where she is. and In other words, I I got the sense in what I've read so far anyway that that one of the reasons she's staying is because if she goes and he comes back, then she's going to think, oh, I've blown it.
4: Yes, exactly. Part of the reason she's staying is because she thinks he'll come back and they'll be able to be in love again. So.
1: But there's no indication that he is coming back. no, it's it's, it's quite sad. it's all in the heart. well, yeah, it, it, yeah. and well written too. Oh, uh, now this is it's fabulous, and it's a great story, and it's one of these things, Like I say, I started reading it last night and and it's a page turner. Uh, I went to bed way later than I usually do because I couldn't put the book down because it's you got to what's going on next? Why did they do this? Uh, and And, of course, the references to Hamilton are so fabulous and wonderful through this. Uh, where do you go from here?
4: um well i'm the kind of person that always has like seven projects on the go so i've got ideas for the next few novels i've written a draft of another one i'm writing nonfiction about um madness and love i'm writing i'm trying to write poetry but that's more for fun um but yeah my next novel is more of a exploration of uh, marriage and family and religion um set in toronto how
1: do you how do you go about this I, I'm always fascinated by people that are creative, whether they're musicians, authors, things of this nature, because it's a it's a different approach. It's it's a it's a passion certainly,
4: yeah.
1: Uh, to do this sort of thing, uh, it's it's not like okay, I got to punch in and I have to work. I'm going to write for five hours or six hours, or do you simply do that? Do you have to discipline yourself to say I'm going to write so many pages today, or does it? Do you have to wait until that motivation comes?
4: Um, I do. I do try to set aside hours where, I, where I'll shut off, um, you know, my my connections to everything, and I'll just write. Um, and I try to, I I warm up by reading a little bit and then writing, but I also do think it's a habit of, of life. Like you walk through the world coming up with lines as you're walking. Um, as you're looking at people, you're wondering what their story is. So it is. It does feel like it's a, a larger habit of life and a passion. i I've been on the
1: classic movie, Shakespeare in Love. I'm, I'm sure you saw uh, oh, back yes. in the. And you've got Will Shakespeare just wandering through the streets in London, and he hears somebody say, "A pox on their houses." And you <laughs> see, you see him like, "Good line, good right line. And yeah. and eventually, oh yeah, I'm going to incorporate that at some point. Yes. Uh, you have to experience life and 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 have your eyes and ears open, I guess, as you go through life to be able to write like this.
4: Yes, totally. I'm always thinking about. The details of our lives and looking at stuff and and in this book actually was me thinking about you know what happens to a car if it's been sitting there for a year and nobody's driven it and looking at it like a habitat now it's a habitat for animals or something
1: yeah so so th- th- this comes in do you have an idea uh, as, as you and your husband were having these discussions uh, do you have a plot in your head and when you sit down to start to write the book do you know how it's gonna end
4: never and I, n- I had no really idea. yeah no idea I'm not a planner, and I, I wrote each section, and at each section I would find something out about port that was new and that led me to the next thing. So to me, the mystery of the story was figuring out how these things worked and why they worked that way, but I did not plan ahead. I, I, I flew by the seat of my pants.
1: At what point do you come up with an idea like that? It sounds like the story is taking you.
4: Yeah, it really You're, you're going
1: on a ride. You're, yeah. you're, the, this, just as I am as a reader, right. and it's taking me to places I didn't know I was going to go, so does the story as you're writing it.
4: Yeah, and you would hope that the energy that you have when you're writing in that way where you're where you're encountering surprises would translate into a reader's experience of of reading in a way that feels surprising and new.
1: It would probably, for a creative person, sound awfully, I, I would think, limiting and structure to simply say, there's the ending. Uh, you know, I mean, They always taught us that in high school, right? When you're going to school, there's got to be a beginning, there's got to be a middle, a plot twist somewhere in the end, and then the happy ending. Right. Uh, but to, to actually use that as a formula, I would think would be rather tedious. You don't know where you're going to go on this.
4: No, and I think that um, there's a John Gardner book, I think, called The Art of Fiction, where he talks about... Um, you find you figure out what your book means as you write it and maybe as you're revising it you start to pull some of that stuff towards the surface And endings for me feel like the, a way for all of the things that are meaningful kind of to come to some to come together in some way but you, I don't know that until I've written it. Well,
1: I haven't got to the end yet, so don't okay, don't sorry. don't tell me that, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> I'll certainly find out this weekend when I finish the book. Uh, congratulations on this, and 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 uh, continued good luck. It's great to finally meet you and to talk about this. I've read some of your other stuff uh, in the other publications, and uh, when I got word that this book was out, I thought I'd really love to have you come in. Usually we do these things over the phone because you're all over the place. But to, to know that you're back in in Hamilton, your hometown here, was uh, was a real a rush for me to meet you and to finally get you on the program. Uh, the book, by the way, is called The Amateurs, and it's Knopf uh, Press in Canada, and uh, it's available, I guess, everywhere, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. Uh, Indigo, wherever you guys buy your books, or go online, whatever you want to do. Amazon, of course, where everybody shops. You can do it that way. Thanks so much for coming in today, Liz.
0: Oh, thank you. But it was my pleasure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.